Episode 131, Brandon Smith, executive coach, author, speaker, and podcaster. So Mark, I've actually been wrestling with this question for probably a good week. Um, and just every moment I had, I'd be kicking around my head, you know, which one of the thousands <laughs> should I share? I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Brandon Smith, his podcast and work and more, look in the show notes in your app or go to markraben.com slash mistake 131. Now on with the show. Our guest today is Brandon Smith. He has a number of roles and descriptors. He is an executive coach. He's an author, a speaker. He's a podcaster. He has a show called The Workplace Therapist. I've been a guest there back in April, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So it's really good to have Brandon um, here as as a guest on on this show. So uh, before I tell you a little more about him, just first off, say welcome, and uh, it's good to see you again, Brandon. How are you? Mark, really great to come on your show, uh, and really good to see you. Yeah, I loved having you on my show. It was one of my favorite shows the last few months, so it's so good to you know, now get to be on the other side of the coin. Yeah. Uh, tables are turned. I mean, like, it, it's not like, I mean, with the name of your show, it's not like I was on a virtual therapist couch that didn't feel like a hot seat. That was a really Although good Although it would have been interesting to, interesting to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk more about what Brandon means by being a workplace therapist. It's not just a podcast. It's his work and, and his mission and a lot of what he does. So we'll learn more about that. Uh, but Brandon is the author of books, including his latest It's called The Hot Sauce Principle, How to Live and Lead in a World Where Everything is Urgent All of the Time. So I think we'll get into that a little bit later on as well. It's an interesting title. We'll see what that principle is and maybe a little bit about what we can do about it. Brandon is the founder and CEO of a company called The Worksmiths. He's the co-founder of The Leadership Foundry, and he is the adjunct faculty member at the Goisweta Business School at Emory University. So I'll work backwards on the, on the degrees. Brandon has an MBA from Emory. He has an MS in clinical counseling from Georgia State University, which probably foreshadows the workplace therapist uh, label. And he has a BA in communications from Vanderbilt University. So Brandon, before we sort of unpack later what it means to be a workplace therapist and, and maybe how you got into that. Well, I don't know. Maybe this is connected. I'm just going to ask the question we normally start with here. What is your favorite mistake? So, Mark, I've actually been wrestling with this question for probably a good week. Um, and just every moment I had, I'd be kicking around my head, you know, which one of the thousands <laughs> should I share? That's why we've because got to choose a favorite. Yeah. So many, right? And it's like, I, I don't know. I can't really say I love them all equally, but, you know, there are, there are so many. Uh, so I settled on one that I think is indicative of a broader um, challenge that I have. So it's kind of like a microcosm of a bigger theme that pops up. As I looked at all my children mistakes, you know, they, they had some themes to them. So are you ready for me to jump in? Yeah. And just to clarify, you're not saying your children 
our mistakes. You're just no, 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 no. In no, a family no. tree of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> family some... tree of mistakes. Actually, actually, my wife, I told her, I told her, I was like, oh, I'm about to go on Mark's show. She said, you're not going to say having three kids is just a mistake, <laughs> are, are you? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, they're all teenagers right now. So they are being very teenagery at the moment, rolling their eyes on a regular basis at everything I say. Yeah. Oh, Aaron, sorry, that's a so, whole other ball game. I I make plenty of mistakes over there. Plenty, plenty. That's a whole other show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be. Um, but anyway, so back to uh, as I derailed you there. But you're talking about there's the microcosm and the the bigger picture. Please, uh, please continue. Yeah, so I'm 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 staying in the professional world. So as I think about my my career and uh, the many mistakes I've made, um, there was there's one that kind of kept coming to mind for me. And so this was some, some years ago. So I'm going to kind of roll back the clock and really kind of tell this as a good story. So um, when I made the decision to um, basically start my own practice and I had some offers to go join some traditional consulting firms and, and I decided on the entrepreneurial life, um, one of the opportunities that I got was to teach more regularly in business schools. And so that turned out to be a very nice thing because when I started my practice, it was 2005. So um, we kind of quickly rolled right into those 2008, 2009 years that many of us can remember as not Bad the years. best, yeah. not the best years for the workplace, uh, recessionary periods. So I ended up getting some a good portion of my income came from my teaching, and it was adjunct, but it was pretty full time. To, to, to be frank, I mean, I was I was teaching regularly a lot of classes, and at one point I was teaching at two different universities in their MBA programs. So it wouldn't be uncommon. Uh, I, I could probably do this when I was a younger guy, um, but it wouldn't be uncommon where I would teach, you know, three, three sections of a class during the day and then hop across town to the other university and then teach a night class for four hours, you know, so well, long days, but I, I did a lot of that. And so it was good. It, it represented a portion of my revenue and income. It was kind of the, the, as I would put it to people, it was like the bond in my portfolio, right? Cause you know, you go out, you find other consulting opportunities, executive coaching opportunities, but this was a stable bond because, you know, university is like, that's going to keep coming every year. So I was, I was doing that. So, um, so I'm doing this work over, over these years and my teaching load is picking up and, and how it works in a business school is um, they typically start you off in may, maybe full-time um, MBA students. Um, and then you might graduate to evening MBA students. Um, and then if you're really fortunate, then they'll say, oh, we want you to do our executive MBA students. Okay. Cause that's all the faculty want to be there because uh, a lot of those folks are, can either bring you possible, um, you know, uh, opportunities to, you know, do some consulting on the side, or you just learn a lot of what, what, what's going on because these are folks a little more senior in their career. Um, and if you really, really get fortunate, which I was able to get to this place, um, and get lucky, which I, I got lucky, uh, you get into executive education, which is another part of where business schools make money. That's when they have companies come in and they, and they pay for programs. So I got to teach there and I got paid additional kind of to, to do that. So all that sounds good on the surface. Well, here's where the mistake comes in. So um, the way business schools work and universities work is it's very much a caste system. Um, so it is, it is absolutely a hierarchical caste system based on your um, title in the school and your background. It's little to do with performance. I want to be very clear. It has everything to do with the, with the political caste system. So sitting on top is your tenured research faculty. They get to make all the decisions. Next in line goes your teaching faculty. These are the folks who are full-time, have PhDs, and they teach. After that might be kind of our administrators. They kind of come next. 
And then it might come, you know, um, staff members and then folks like me, which are adjunct faculty. So what was happening was I was getting all this work I was doing at the business school. But, you know, if, if another faculty member, a higher up in the cash system, wanted something that I had, they could just take my lunch money. They could just say, I want, that's not fair. He shouldn't have that. And they would just give it to me, even though it wasn't about so much about performance. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of stating the reason why they had me do these things was because the clients or the, or the, or the students liked me. I, I, during that stretch, I, I won about 12 teaching awards. So I, I was winning a lot of teaching awards. So here's this challenge I've got. I'm, I'm, I'm in this relationship, okay, with the business school and multiple business schools and not feeling like I'm being treated particularly well. But um, if I was to be honest, I liked the security of that income, right? And I also liked being able to tell people, well, I teach you this business school, right? Or, you know, it, because there's some, it opens doors and there's, and, and it makes sense to people, right? So there's, a, there's that brand you, you, you get attached to. And, and even my folks, my dad is 87 years old and my mom's um, 84. They still don't really know what I do, Mark. But, but if I said, hey, I teach at a business school, they're like, oh, I get that. Like he teaches <laughs> at a business school. Yeah. Right? So, so where my mistake came in was I essentially traded off um, greater opportunities and freedom to really make a bigger impact and really build my businesses for the safety and security of those, of those roles even though I was being, from my perspective, not treated as fairly or as equitably as I probably should have, because it is so political. Uh, And and so I I, I stayed in that that, that bad relationship for probably three or four years too long. And then one day I said, you know, this just isn't, this isn't, this isn't what I want. So um, when the time to renew my contract came up, I just declined. I said, nope. So I just turned and walked away from that. Um, and, and of course they said, well, why? I don't understand. I said, well, because, you know, I'm going to turn this away for the possibility that I'm going to fill my time with other things. But just as I said, with the possibility, it could have been that nothing else came, but as you've probably seen in your career and heard talking to your other clients, uh, and I'd always heard, but deep down, not sure if I really believed it, better things would fill that time. Right. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and it did better things came and filled that time. And it gave me more opportunity to launch another business and do more things that I would never have been able to do had I stayed in that relationship. Um, so, so it was, so the, so it really was about this pattern that I have of, of trying to make relationships work that maybe aren't, um, aren't, aren't really set up for what I want going forward and staying in them too long. And that was a great example. It, it turned out where I finally did it, it did open a bunch of doors for me, but I kicked myself that I didn't do it about three or four years earlier. Yeah. Well, and at that point, the economy was hitting a better stride. Things were more positive. It seemed like that would be a good bet to place on yourself as opposed to um, I mean, I, I guess it could have played out. And I'm, I'm glad it didn't play out this way. You might have looked back and said it was a mistake to leave that yeah. stable, secure situation. But again, what I'm hearing you saying is you you, you wish you had made that place that better in yourself a couple of years earlier. And and you know, it's it's challenging because you you make that that leap of faith, and it's not like I've got a whole, a whole bunch of folks in my corner saying, "Hey, that's a great decision." Most folks are saying, "Are you sure you want to do that?" Mm-hmm. I, are you re- really, are you really sure you want to do that? Because there's so much like just security and staying there. 
Um, so they, they so other people thought it was a mistake. Were they telling you that point blank? They were kind of hinting at it. Yeah, they were. Other people, you know, said, you know, hinting at it. No, my my eighty seven year old dad was very much clearly saying it's a mistake. Like you shouldn't do that. Uh, but yeah, a lot of other folks just they didn't they didn't understand it. They they thought it would be better to stay in that safe place. But it just it just wasn't it just wasn't working for me. I wasn't feeling appreciated and fulfilled. And I was feeling a little bit constrained on other things I might want to do. Now, was there a particular trigger for realizing, okay, hey, this is a mistake. This has been a mistake to stay this long. Or, or did it build up gradually to a point where it reached a tipping point of, okay, the, the reasons to leave are clearly now out, outweighing the reasons to stay. Yeah. So so there was a, there, there, there was, there was a trigger. There was a trigger. Um, I'm specifically not naming names for many, many reasons. So I had a particular nemesis faculty member that just for whatever reason did not like that I was getting opportunities that he was not. And so um, it it came time to restructure and set course um, requirements for the year. And and the way full-time faculty work is you have to have a certain number of teaching hours. Okay. And you map your class load to those teaching hours. Okay. Well, they didn't, they weren't able to fill one of the cohorts of students enough for this faculty member to have enough teaching hours. So he, he went hunting for classes and he found a class that I teach every year. And he said, well, I want his class because I need it to fulfill my contract. Now, this was a class that I was asked to design and create about 10 years ago. And I did. And it gets the highest reviews in every single uh, of all the evening students every year. And they gave it to him. They just took the class that I created, I designed, uh, and all the students loved and just handed it over to them. And they didn't, they, not only did they not fight for me or support me, they just let him just take my lunch money. Wow. So I said, and, and what was, I what said, was the right. class? Sorry to interrupt. What so was it, was a, it was a, it was a um, leadership communication class, but, it, but, 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 the, but the specific focus of the class was it, because I really want to tailor it into where the students were in their career. It was how do you get recognized as a high potential your first year after graduating with your MBA. That was the target focus of the class. That was the kind of the, the subtitle. And so everything was designed around learning how to lead within a complex organization and, and influence to get recognized. And through the, even the assignments I gave the students, 20% of the students would get um, uh, promotions going through that class, uh, almost within six months or less. So it was a great class. Uh, you can tell I'm passionate about it. Well, until it got taken away from me. So yeah, yeah, there was yeah. a tipping point, Mark. That was it. Okay. Now I'm, I'm curious. One other thing you said is that there was uh, a pattern. Um, I assume, like, had, were there previous jobs where he, you had also tried sticking it out too long, longer than you should have before moving on? Other previous steps in your career path? There had been. So see, this is one of the the catch twenty twos. I think we probably all have as people. I'm a relational guy. I love building relationships with my clients. I love having long term relationships with them. I'm, I'm a therapist by training. So you know, working with people and building those relationships is very important to me. And while that can be a good thing, some relationships just aren't meant for long term. They're just not not. So um, early on, when I finished my MBA, I had a business partner that I worked with, and uh, he was an amazing person but not a very good business partner. So talented guy, but um, would have a hard time um, sending off invoices. 
which as you know, in a business, that's, that's kind of a critical, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a critical thing. That's a mistake he, to not send invoices. Right? He would, and he would wait three, four, five months till he was sent out an invoice. And then, and you know, when you send out an invoice, that doesn't signal when you're going to get paid. It signals when you're going to start the follow-up process, right? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. you yeah. get paid at all different rates. So uh, he had a hard time with that. He would uh, kind of get, get stuck and have a hard time just like getting things done. He would want me to come over and sit with him in his office while he would work. It was just a very um, clunky, cumbersome relationship. And, and we basically kind of worked through that. And I worked, I stayed in that until eventually we got into the recessionary period. And he said, you know, I think I want to go do something else. And I said, well, okay, well, good, good luck to that. But that was, that was three years and it was probably longer than I needed to. So that, that was kind of one of the initial starting places. Um, and, and, but I've had many kind of more examples of, of that where, you know, I, as I sit back and I say, you know that those are those are cases where I probably should have tried to um, move on quicker, and sometimes I've learned from that, which has been good. Right. Well, and that, that's the key here, and that's what we talk about. It's 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 not lamenting over the mistakes; it's about the learning that comes from them. And I, and I won't get into I won't get into it because uh, it's your guest and it's your stories. But just by comparison, you made me reflect. Um, my first job out of college. And then my first job out of business school, I probably left those jobs a little sooner than I should have. It wasn't a huge mistake to leave, but I was sort of at the other end of the spectrum. We're part of Interesting. The if I had got, if I had stuck it out, maybe one more year, I probably would have made the same decision to leave. Yeah, but you know, I don't know if that was just you know being young and impatient or idealistic or all of the above. Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, that's yeah. interesting. You had kind of the flip experience as you, as you reflect back. And some of that has changed. I don't know if that's learning or just maturing or 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 who knows. But um, anyway, you just you you made me think about that, and I just wanted to all right say it, put the thought aside, and I'll ponder yeah. that a little. I'll think about that a little bit more over the weekend. You know, they they often talk in, in managerial accounting. They often talk about sunk costs. Right? You've probably heard that term before, right? So it's like you know we get we get so invested. It's like well, then just three more. I'll throw a, a few more bucks at it, and it'll make it work. I've already got a hundred thousand dollars in a few more thousand, then it'll turn, turn the corner. And I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a line somewhere for me, you know, where if I can make the decision before there's too much cost invested, then I'm okay. But if there, but once we get into some cost territory, I'll, I'll tend to stay, stay in, in it longer than I should. So it's, it's trying my life journey is trying to figure out that line and make mm-hmm. the right decisions at the right time. And at the time, it feels like the right decision. And sometimes hindsight proves that to be true. And sometimes hindsight makes us think about what if, but no, no huge regrets there. But um, anyway, I want to I want to bring it back to your role and what you do is describing yourself as a workplace therapist, because I know from your background, again, for the for the audience, um, a master's in clinical counseling. It looks like from your profile that you spent a lot of time doing that, you know, traditional um counseling with individuals who are facing different challenges in their lives. What was the spark in the genesis of becoming, uh, as you describe yourself, a, a workplace therapist? How did that come to be? And what do you mean by that phrase, workplace therapist? Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So t- that's, that's two, two part question. That's going to require two different stories. Okay. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's yeah. do the first I, story. I, I make a mistake sometimes in jamming a bunch of questions well, together into one. You might so not realize please. there's actually two stories there. So, so the first story okay. is how did I go down this path? And then we'll talk sure. about the, the handle. Okay. So um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I, I graduated college. I graduated with a communications degree. And I always tell folks like most good communication majors, I was unemployed at graduation, wondering what am I going to do with this thing? 
and I fumbled around and I got a job with a small chain of retail stores. It was a family-owned business. They had 15 stores. And um, I was going to be the assistant manager of one of those stores. And so my boss was the son-in-law of the business. So the woman who started the business, her daughter marries this guy. He's my boss. So I get to work the first day. Um, he greets me at the door and he says, hey, before you get started, I've got tasks for you. Waiting for you in the back room is the current assistant manager of the store. But he doesn't know you're coming. <laughs> so you have to go back there and fire him and you get his job. <laughs> so I've worked other jobs before, but this is my first full-time job, right? Out of college. First, first mm-hmm. full-time job. So that's what I had to do. And that's how my boss would roll. He'd come in. He loved to do all the things we learned not to do as leaders. He loved surprise visits to try and catch you doing something wrong. So he, he, he makes surprise visits in the store and he'd, take, he'd go in the back with me. He'd be like, I don't like what Susan's wearing. Go fire her. So I had to do more layoffs in the first six months of that job than any other time in my career. And that experience kind of woke me up. It made me realize a couple of things. First, it made me realize, you know, work should not have to suck. It shouldn't be this place of anxiety and depression. I mean, it, it, it is work. I get that. But it should, it should be a place of more fulfillment, uh, f- um, you know, success, impact, purpose, those kinds of things. Like feeling like you're making a difference in everything you do. Uh, second, if my boss was any indication of the state of leadership in the world, I really wanted to change that. And, and third, that was where that was where my kind of purpose was born that I wanted to kind of eliminate all workplace dysfunction um, everywhere forever, make workplaces smoother and healthier and less bumpy. Having no idea what I'd signed up for. And so that that really set me off on the path of getting my clinical degree because back in those days, um, there wasn't a lot of executive coaching certificates. If you wanted to be an executive coach, you kind of had to create your own path. So I chose a clinical path first to get my skills solid and then worked in the corporate world for a while to understand that language and then moved and got my MBA and kind of you know, the rest is history. So it was really that first job that was like the, the spark for me that said, wow, this I no one should have to go through this. And I have a feeling a lot of people are. I want to fix that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And there, there's a lot of there is a lot of similarity to that point. And I, I remember we were able to talk about that um, back on, on your podcast, this idea. That was my big takeaway from my first job out of college. People yeah. shouldn't hate coming to work. Different yeah. way of saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to fix that and particularly recognize the impact that the leader has. So I, I do it through people. I mean, you can do it through systems, you can do it through structures. I do it a lot through people because I would notice he would, you know, then I became, a, while I was there, I was, then I got elevated manager and I get a phone call and they'd be like, yeah, you got to move to this other store because they all walked out because my boss, you know, came in there and they were so mad at him. They just staged a, a mass walkout. So there's currently no employees at that store anymore. So I would have to go fill in. So he created so much havoc, you know, it's kind of hold a, what's the, um, Socratic oaths, you know, do, do do no harm, right? It's like the Hippocratic oath. The fir- Hippocratic well, yeah, oath. Yeah, it's Hippocratic related. Oath. The, the the first do no harm. Yeah, it's a related yeah. idea, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So is that whole idea like it's like had he not been there, things would have been smoother. Like every time he showed up, he would create. <laughs> it's like the business would have been better if he was just on on a you know vacation year round, not right. not right. walking in. Uh, so, so so that's. So that's I was going to say, so that's the first story, but then where the handle comes in, that's a, that's another story. Okay. I mean, I, that really sounds like um, elements uh, halfway between the movie Office Space and the show The Office, but maybe without the humor, maybe just the cringeworthy 
what WTF, why are, why are yeah. you that way moment? I think people relate to those, that movie and that, and that show in particular so well because it is so real. Yeah. I mean, we, we watch it as if it's, you know, we pretend like it's not real, but I have met people like Michael Scott mm-hmm. and they are kind hearted people, but they say things every day that you just say, what really did you, why, why did you think that was a good idea to say that? But they don't, they don't know better. So do you end up now as a workplace therapist being um, brought in to help people like that? Or so I'm curious, you know, let's, let's talk more about the phrase. Are you a therapist for the organization kind of broadly or for people within workplace challenges as opposed to, let's say, issues with personal life? You, you know, I don't know what the phrase means to people. I know people like it. So let me tell you where it came from. So um, back when I was teaching more actively at that u- university I mentioned, um, a local NPR affiliate reached out to the university and said, hey, we need a guest to come on a show we have. Every Friday, it's called At Work. It's a call-in show on the N- on regional NPR affiliates. So I went on that week and they said, oh my gosh, that was great. We really liked having you. Come back next week. Okay. That went on for two years. For two years, every week I would go on and eventually I became a host of that show for a period of time. Uh, and I had another guest who, uh, who would come on the show and he also called himself an executive coach. But he couldn't have been more different from me. He was like the bizarro Brandon. Okay, he would yell at callers. Um, he didn't listen at all. It was just weird. And so one day I found myself trying to explain how I was, even though we both said we're executive coaches, how we're different. And I said I'm a lot more like a workplace therapist. And the person I said that to, their eyes lit up, and they were like, "I totally get that." And they just started talking to me all about what was going on in their workplace. And I tested that handle for about six months. And sure enough, that was, it was more like that's how the world saw me and who the world needed me to be. Uh, now, what I actually, what I, what I do when I'm working in, in the world is, is really trying to make people, teams, and organizations, you know, function better together, throw less elbows and step on toes a lot less. So that, so when I'm working with, with an individual leader, that's through the executive coaching, um, that may be a leader who just got promoted. It's a happy coaching, or it may be a leader that needs to, you know, they, they thrown a few too many elbows and I've got to help them learn how to share their toys a little better. Uh, it, it could be teams, teams that maybe aren't getting along as well as they could or want to get along better. Um, and it could just simply be, Hey, just give all of our leaders some more tools to make them, you know, a little bit, a little bit smoother as they kind of take folks forward. Um, so it takes lots of different forms, but that's, that's essentially what that handle looks like the workplace therapist kind of handle and in, in practice for me. Yeah. So it sounds like there are a couple groups of workplace therapy clients. There are those maybe who choose to engage with you and those who are told to engage with you either. That's hey, you're promoted happy times. Here's, here's a coach. And they might say, know if I need a coach or I imagine it's got to be harder in that more remedial case where it's um, in response to a problem. Yeah. What, how, how do you, what's the difference in approach when someone's like, or how do you figure out when someone is, is, is willing to lean into it versus someone's there because they have to be. Yeah. So you're right. It is, it is different. Um, in, in the cases where, you know, I've got to help someone make some changes in order for this to be a long-term relationship for them and, and their job. In other words, keep their job. Uh, 
the most important thing is they've got to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to put in the hard work. Because, so I'm going to give you another analogy. Have you ever played golf before, Mark? A couple of times as an adult, and I just didn't take to it. I decided yeah, okay. I wasn't going to put it's, in the effort. It's, a, it's a really, you really have to put an effort to play that sport. It's a frustrating game. I don't play anymore. But I've gone through the process of taking golf lessons years ago. And they're the most uncomfortable lesson to take because then the first thing they do is however you hold the golf club, they say, oh, that's all wrong. And they give you this weird way of holding it where you're like overlapping and lacing over your fingers that no normal human would ever do. Okay. But it's designed to get you to hit that ball a little bit to the right. So it has a little bit of a draw. So it, it rolls better when it hits the ground. Okay. Well, in many cases, coaching is the same way. I'm going to ask you to do something that feels really unnatural to you. It might not be unnatural to the next guy, but it's unnatural to you. And so you've got to be able to put forth that effort. So they've got to be willing to do that. So A, they've got to say, I'm willing to do it. And B, simply put, um, do they do it? You know, between our calls, are they putting forth the effort and trying to make those changes happen? My job is to make that as easy as possible and support them, but they've got to put forth the effort. Um, it's when I don't see that, that then I might say, you know, maybe they're not completely ready for this. But, but 90, 95% of the time, um, the, the, the folks I work with do really want to genuinely get better and, and they are willing to get that kind of support and help. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I think when you use that golf example, I could think of different professional situations where you know, somebody is very, you know, maybe say resistant to expertise. And there's this catch 22 of like, you've brought me in or you've brought somebody in for some sort of expertise. And now you're saying, well, no, eh, this way works for me. Like, so people might say, yeah, okay. Yeah. You're teaching me that it feels uncomfortable. I'm going to go play a bunch of rounds this week and Brandon's not looking. So I'm going to do it my way. And right. um, same might be true in workplaces where um, somebody might look to, you know, they, 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 they just might be stuck in a habit. Um, they might disagree with the, the advice and rather than trying it, they'll just say, eh, no, I'm not going to do that. that that's, that's hard to work through. But and the, the, I guess the irony in all that is, you know, whoever's brought in, he's got the same goals and objectives as the person who brought them in. I want to make you better. I want to help you achieve the results you want. And I'm giving you a path there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's up to them to kind of walk down the path. They've, sure. they've got to do it. Now, um, uh, you know, you triggered my thoughts to leaving. I won't say which company. I've left a couple of companies. So um but I, as, as I was having this doubt of, huh, should I have stuck it out longer? I'm having actually more of a flashback here where in this one job, I was struggling so much with finding my place, sticking it out, making it work versus saying, this just isn't a fit. This place isn't aligned with me. I should just get out. And so I utilized the company's EAP program and mm. went and saw a therapist in their office offsite one-on-one. Long story short, this therapist said, you wouldn't believe how many people I talked to from the company. I'm paraphrasing. This is my memory of it. That place is toxic and you should get out. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was all, yeah. it was surprisingly direct. I think she was wow. saying like your instincts or, I mean, she was, I think in a way reaffirming, um, I wanted to leave. Uh, don't, don't think you're wrong for wanting that. I mean, again, this is my fuzzy uh, old right. memory of it, but. Um, but it's good because she's helpful. trying, she's trying to reaffirm your gut instinct and, and not have you feel like you're, 
you know, being gaslit, right? That you think that you're in this place and they're thinking, oh, it's just you, Mark. You're crazy. Everybody around here finds this. Well, I, I think there's that self-reflection of like, what's wrong with me that I don't fit in here? And I think she validated, no, no, there's probably nothing. I mean, there might be something wrong with me, but <laughs> that's maybe not, the, there's something I could improve about myself. Let me put it that way. But that, I don't think that was the core. If she was saying, yeah, company's broken. Um, yeah. A lot of people leave and for good reason. Yeah. So I'll, I'll stop second guessing that maybe. <laughs> now that yeah. I remember that context, but um, so Brandon, uh, let's, let, before we wrap up, let's, let's talk about uh, your book uh, and uh, another catchy phrase, memorable phrase, the hot sauce principle. Where, where does that come from? I think of hot sauce and some people say there's even an ad for one of the hot sauces about putting that on everything. I think they yeah, even bleep yeah. out. We they put do. that bleep it's on Frank's everything. Frank's hot sauce. It's Frank's hot book. sauce. And I always, so if, when I would talk about this concept, I always, um, Tabasco must love me. Uh, if you've ever been in a hotel, you know, you've probably seen yeah. these little tiny Tabasco bottles. You can Teeny get like, tiny, the, right. like the brunch buffets, you know? Um, uh-huh. uh, and so I buy these in bulk and I would hand them out to people. And here's the idea behind the concept. So the concept is um, urgency is just like hot sauce. Um, and it, in earlier days, let's go back 15, 20 years ago, in the change management space, a, a lot of experts, John Cotter included, would say the first step in, of driving any change is you have to have a high enough sense of urgency. Come on, managers, you got to create some urgency. The burning platform. And that's true whether I'm talking about getting one of my coaching clients to change or you're trying to get a whole organization to adopt a new system or, or process, right? It changes hard. Well, if we now come up to today, that's no longer, the, the issue is no longer, we need enough urgency around here. The issue is we need focused urgency because we live in a world where time's our most precious resource, not money, and everything's urgent all the time. And that's consistently, I hear that from every person I talk to, no matter where they are on the globe, no matter what kind of work they do, for profit or nonprofit, they feel like everything that's being put pushed onto them is covered in hot sauce. It's like everything coming out of the kitchen is doused in this stuff, right? The appetizer, the entree, the salad. It, it, it's burning your eyes and making it's your burning your eyes. Water. You know, you're sweating profusely, um, and so you don't want it on everything. So the principle behind the book is learning how to use this properly, okay? Because hot sauce in the right amounts in the right places adds focus, adds priority, adds flavor. Right. Um, but if you cover everything in it, it creates overwhelm. So it's so the book is about as a leader, how you do it properly, but also as someone who's in an organization and has leaders or customers creating urgency, how do you properly manage those demands? So so you and your team just don't get completely burned up. Is there a, it seems like there might be a parallel. I'm, I'm, I can handle Tabasco. I like Cholula. I like Sriracha. Um, my dad, I think, has a gene that I did not inherit where he can eat stuff that is just atomically hot, yeah. like signing a waiver because it's so hot wings or hot sauce. But I wonder, so the, the organizational parallel I'm thinking of is like when you consume enough hot sauce, do you become numb to it? And do you yeah. have to then somehow up the Scoville units yes. of the hot sauce? I think it's a great analogy. I think that's absolutely right. So that's, so that's part of the challenge that organizations are having right now. They're numb to it. You know, someone throws another thing urgent on your plate, you, you're just, you're numb to it. Oh, really? Another one? I just got three yesterday and four the day before that. You know, so it's, is it really, really urgent? Well, you'll, I'll get to it when I, when I get to it. So, so what, what really needs to happen is um, 
probably, first of all, probably less, right? Probably less. And then what you do, use it on, be focused. So I'll tell you a great story that it's in the book. Uh, it came from a client of mine. So several years ago, I was telling him about this. He was an entrepreneur. He had a software business. He had about 50 employees. And, and the most anxious entrepreneur I'd ever met before, Mark. I mean, the guy was like, you could almost see him vibrating when he was in front of you. He was so anxious. And his employees told me, it's like he's creating so much anxiety because he worries about everything all the time and everything is urgent. So I told him this analogy. Well, on his own, he went out and he bought, went to the grocery store and he bought three big bottles of hot sauce and stuck them on his desk. One, two, three. And then whenever there was a new initiative or project that was urgent, he would hand one of the bottles to the owner of that initiative and said, keep the bottle until the project is done and then give me back the bottle. But you got to hold on to the bottle until the project is done. And why that was so brilliant is he only had three bottles. Only three things could be urgent at a time. So I think the first starting place for organizations is let's, let's get our taste buds back and let's, let, let's pull back on not making everything urgent and then, and then be a little more intentional on turning up the Scoble, Scoble units on the ones that really are. It's funny when you talk about heat and having to prioritize. The one company that I left was a manufacturing company and working in logistics and supply chain. And they would have what they called, literally, they called it the hot list of like, these were the most urgent expedited orders based on customers who had complained and most important customers and what have you. And that hot list was so big that then there was another list that had the founder CEO's name. It was the blank list because that was the hottest of the hot. So <laughs> they fell into that same trap. You can't make yeah. too many orders high priority because then basically nothing does. Yeah. Yeah. As human beings and people, we, we tend to work really well off of three to five, three to five things. Our brains hold three to five really well. I mean, think about all the things in the world that are threes. You know, I mean, it can be both in the spiritual world to just the practical world. Threes, lots of things come in threes. And part of the reason why is because it works really well for the way our brains are made. It's not, it's not 33. It's, it's three. So, you know, keeping those things, you know, the, the, the irony is the, the shorter the list, the more we're going to get accomplished. I think, I think that's the irony in it, you know, because it's focused. Everyone is aligned. They're all marching down the same path versus like spinning around in circles. Well, you can get a couple of things done and then move on to the next ones, as opposed yeah. to having just the swirl of distraction. Yeah. And get that sense of accomplishment. That's the other thing that I hear so often from right. leaders right now, because everything's urgent. I don't ever feel like I'm ever getting anything accomplished. Yeah. I'm never checking anything off completely and then getting a moment to pause and celebrate before I go, go on to the next thing. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's managing it that way. Yeah. So um, if, if as a listener, you're making the mistake of bathing in a tub full of hot sauce, learn to use hot sauce as a condiment, not the main, yeah. Nobody drinks a bottle yeah. of hot sauce not, for dinner. Not, hopefully not. not the soup. <laughs> not the right. soup. There you go. <laughs> um, well, well, thank you, Brandon. Our, our guest again has been uh, Brandon Smith. Um, as he describes himself and his podcast are called The Workplace Therapist. Um, well, I'll put links to everything in the show notes, but where can people find you online, Brandon? You know, the easiest way, Mark, is just Google The Workplace Therapist. Uh, I, I'm the only one. That's the easiest way. And and that that site is all free resources. It's my blog, podcast, articles, all there designed to help folks. 
um, be better leaders and have healthier work and workplaces. Um, and then, of course, if they ever wanted to get additional help and wanted to work with me directly, um, you can contact me through that site or go to the Worksmiths, just like the Blacksmiths, but works the Worksmiths. Uh, and that's another um, opportunity that, uh, for me to assist in any way that I can. All right. Well, very good. Brandon, thank you for sharing everything uh, that you did today. Lots to think about and really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Mark, for thanks, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again to Brandon Smith for being our guest today. To learn more about him for links to his podcast and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake 131. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.